welcome to the Let's Start Health podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Haynes. We live in a noisy world, and this space is intended to bring you clarity, enrich your bank of wellness knowledge, and inspire you to kickstart your journey to healing body, mind, and soul. I'll be interviewing industry professionals and bringing you raw, real, and personal stories of healing through gut health, intuitive eating, and the power of the abundance mindset. Thank you so much for tuning in and getting curious. Your journey to healing starts now. Hi there. Welcome back to another episode of Let's Start Health a podcast willing to start the hard conversations needed in order to break through stigmas of mental and physical health, as well as inspire those on a journey to healing. I'm your host, Chelsea Haynes. We've been rolling for about 17 strong weeks now, and it truly has been nothing but a joy to produce these episodes for you. My prayer is that anyone who may benefit from these episodes finds them. And of course, that will happen more easily the more we grow and share this community. With that said, I wanted to say please and thank you for your shares, ratings, and reviews on iTunes as it helps us keep these conversations going. So after some review, my team and I were talking, we've decided to switch our episode launches to Wednesdays. Starting next week, you'll see Let's Start Health at the top of your podcast feed each Wednesday morning. This week, I'm honored to hold space for two amazing men who are here putting their hearts on platters and sharing their most vulnerable stories of addiction and their journey to recovery. My first guest, Mark, was brave enough to reach out to me when I went looking for guests for these shows. Mark is married with three children and has been a trial lawyer in Chicago for over two decades. Today, he shares his extremely vulnerable addiction to sex, fantasy, and secrecy. He hopes that in sharing his story, he'll bring awareness and begin to break the stigmas of addictions of all kinds. Thank you so much, Mark, for your bravery. My second guest today is my friend Robert Crotty, who from a very young age became addicted to alcohol as a result of trying to compensate for the lack of friendships he had with people his own age. Robert has been sober since May 2006, and you will love his story of addiction and recovery. Both guests are motivated not only to bring awareness to addiction, but really to help shape and maybe change our perspective of people who are struggling with addiction. So please enjoy this part two of a three-part series of short stories of people recovering and managing addiction. Mark, thank you so, so, so much for being here today. And for our listeners today, Mark has been a trial lawyer in Chicago for over 22 years, first as a prosecutor and then moving on to investigate police-involved shootings and allegations of excessive force. Lots of good work that you're doing here, Mark. It's amazing. And after a number of positions the last few years, he has been a criminal defense and family law attorney for nearly a year. He is married with three children and is a virtual lifelong addict. So Mark, thank you so much for being here today. And we will go ahead and just dive right in. If you wouldn't mind, please sharing with us your addiction and when this started in your life. Great. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. Um, 
my addiction, my addiction started pretty much when I was four. I saw my first uh, bit of pornography when I was four and I was mesmerized by it. Throughout the years, I maintained this mesmerization with pornography and I found ways to uh, be with other children and and to really just try to find ways to what we call act out in my in my addiction. I learned that through high school and through college that my unwillingness to be vulnerable and to be open was what uh, was what was what really got to me and I found that using the physical rather than actually speaking or being honest from the heart was my way of trying to tell somebody that I liked them. That rarely, rarely worked. By the time I turned 18 and was able to get into strip clubs, I began going there on a regular basis. Strip clubs, as you know, make their money from treating you like a king, like you're the only person in that room when you walk in. And it was validation that I needed that I didn't necessarily get. From strip clubs, I then moved on to massage parlors for a while. While that was not, I guess you could say my thing, um, I began seeing prostitutes on a regular basis. I did this while I was working as a prosecutor. I did this with every chance, with every encounter that I had, every chance of being caught, uh, losing my reputation, losing my license if I were charged criminally. Once the real advent of social media came around, I found a new medium now. I found a new way to connect with real people, I guess you could say. And I hate to say this, but I'm a very good manipulator. And I could manipulate many women, and I did manipulate many women into relationships with me, whether they were sexual online um, or later on sexual in person, or sometimes just what felt like a romantic relationship, the fantasy aspect of it. Thank you so much for sharing that, Mark. And I know this is not an easy conversation to navigate. So I really just appreciate you being so willing and so vulnerable to share this addiction that really seems like it has made its way into all areas of your life and to a point where you were even willing to lose everything in order to fulfill this validation that you said that you needed and to fill this void, to fill this need. So I'd like to back it up just a little bit um, to when this first started. At four years old, that seems quite young to be exposed to pornography. And may I ask, how might that have happened? And I would imagine that that vision at such a young age is then what kind of catapulted you into learning this was a coping skill for any other trauma in life? Well, the, the neighbor children had a copy of a, uh, we'll call it a nudie magazine so that we don't use any brand names here. Mm -hmm. And they showed me a copy of it. I was afraid. I was crying. I was scared. I was shaking. 
And then I saw those pictures and something changed and it became almost obsessive for me. I wanted to look through the whole magazine. Um, it was definitely an early point. And I had friends growing up whose fathers had stacks of magazines. And when I went over to their houses, that, that was all I wanted to do. I would try to pressure them into, let's look at these. Um, and sometimes they would, and other times they would say something to the extent of, I, I don't want to, I'm bored. Or, you know, I really don't want to do that right now. But that was what I wanted to do. Um, I, I learned early on from, from a couple of traumas that really, I felt that the world was unsafe and I felt that my family was not able to protect me or to at least give me that, that security of protection that I, that I needed. Mm. Yeah. And, and I can imagine, you know, there are, there are three basic needs in every human being, right? To feel love, to feel accepted and to feel safe. And when one of these basic needs are threatened, we go to extremes in order to cope with that threat, right? So where something might've been in this case, a natural curiosity transitioned into what you mentioned, an, an obsession. So what do you feel like might've been that trigger point for you? You know, the world became unsafe and you felt like your family was unable to protect you. Was there a specific incident and you don't have to go into details, but you know, was there a specific trauma, specific incident that then is what, transitioned this possibly natural curiosity into this obsession? Um, there certainly was, and I can be very brief and very general about it. When I was five years old, both my sister and I were pulled off of the street into a truck and basically kidnapped. And I had to sit next to my sister as I was watching her being sexually abused when we were finally able to get away from this person, the police were called. And because I was so young, nobody would let me talk to the police. And the next day it was swept under the carpet. There was no talking about it. I had no outlet. I had no feeling of you're going to be okay. And it, it, I realize now it tarnished my view of the world. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And unfortunately, there are so many times that I see this happen where a massively traumatic event happens. And for whatever reason, those emotions, the experience gets stifled down, right? And we don't have the proper community, people, or coping skills to encourage us to lean into those uncomfortable feelings and to really digest and talk about what happened. And do you feel like, you know, the, that for that reason, that lack of coping skills around this extremely traumatic experience is probably what directly led you down this path of confusion around sex and using, using it as a means of validation I guess would be the way I'm asking. 
Oh, absolutely. It yeah. was a means of validation. Mm. Um, it told, it told me, it told my addicted brain that you're worthy rather than the feelings that I had any other time when I was not being sexual, which was if people knew the real me, they would never love me. They would never stay with me. Um, rather than I was doing bad things, I was made to feel that I was a bad person. And those are two completely different things. The juxtaposition there is um, just amazing. Mm. I, I really agree with the power in, of words. You know, words are not just vernacular. And I'm, again, I'm just so grateful for your willingness to show the differentiation that, right? right? Like a bad person versus someone doing bad things is, is really, it's important to note. So on that same note, have you ever had the realization that you, Mark, are not broken, but rather there was this really deep wound that needed healing in your life? And if so, when might have you had that realization? I think I had the realization probably a few years ago, and I know it was, um, it was a family of origin issue. But where I realized, when I really realized that there was the bigger wound and I really leaned into it was when I went into inpatient therapy in late 2017 in another state, I talked specifically to a trauma therapist who conducted uh, EMDR experiments with me. And I wish I could tell you what EMDR stands for, but I can't. Mm -hmm. I just know that EMDR is a process where you're being stimulated through your uh, you're being stimulated through your ears and through your senses in your palms at a regular rhythmic rate. What that does is it replicates the REM cycle, even though you're awake. And the REM cycle is when you're to do your best healing in the brain. And this person would talk to me and this person would bring out emotions that I have stifled for at that point, probably about 42 years. Wow. And I, I to this day, I still have issues, um, especially in the, in the anger area because I've never really dealt with anger before. And I, still to this day have a difficult time dealing with it in a healthy way. Yeah, I can imagine. So EMDR, for anybody listening, stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. So it's really a process of getting into our body and giving us, just like you said, Mark, the opportunity for deep healing on a subconscious level. So I'm so happy that you had the opportunity to reach out and ask for help on a deeper level to do this subconscious work. Because just like you said, emotions are very valid. And if we don't know how to cope with them, then they get categorized as 
bad. And then we feel like, again, we're, when we're angry, we're thrown into this, I'm a bad person doing bad things. But if we really can allow those emotions to come forward and learn coping skills and heal the wounds behind them, then maybe we can start managing these emotions in a healthier way. So taking another step forward here, Mark, do you experience stigma around your addiction? And if so, how do you deal with that? Well, certainly to me, there's a huge stigma in this particular addiction. Uh, for better or for worse, it seems that many of the uh, addictions to alcohol or to uh, any sort of types of drugs are becoming more mainstream and more accepted. I compare it to walking into the family house and saying, I have a problem with alcohol. I need to go get help for it. I believe that the people in that house would then say, well, it's great that you've realized this and whatever we can do to help you, we will. Walking into that same family and saying, I'm having an issue with sex addiction and I need to go get help creates a completely different reaction. And a lot of the times the reaction almost is, hide your children as if every sex addict is somehow attracted to children. And that's certainly not the case. And I definitely learned that in my inpatient therapy. I feel like the, I feel like the, the Me Too movement has helped and I th hope that it continues and I hope that it starts to bring people to light and more celebrities even find themselves being able to say, I'm addicted to sex. Uh, during that, during the time I was down in inpatient, it was when Harvey Weinstein, it was when Matt Lauer, it was when all of these people were being accused of sexual acts. And I really thought that would give some mainstream credibility to the, the issue. It didn't as much as I thought it was going to. And I'm kind of disappointed by that. It is a stigma where I feel I cannot tell anybody about what I have, uh, anybody that I don't trust, and I don't trust anybody. So it makes things extremely difficult. I have told two people outside of any sort of addiction um, therapy about my problems. Well, I, I'm sharing with you now, Mark, that this takes deep, deep, deep bravery and your vulnerability is being met with empathy right now. And I'm sure anybody listening to this who can put themselves into what it might have been like as a five-year-old who was kidnapped and forced to watch their sister being sexually abused. You know, there, there's so much room for compassion and empathy there. And I think you are a warrior on the forefront of educating here. And again, that takes bravery. It takes a lot of work. And it seems like it could be a one step forward, two steps back kind of dance. But this is one of those steps forward. So thank you so much for being so willing to 
to share this and for trusting me to hold space for your story. And I hope that it ripples out in the way that it is intended. And that's truly for healing, for deep, deep, deep healing and to bring light that addiction happens on so many levels. And oftentimes it really is the result of imbalanced emotions and undigested trauma. So let me ask you, Mark, now what what are you doing now in light of these life experiences that we can celebrate with you? Well, again, in 2017, I checked myself into an inpatient recovery. Mm. Uh, I did that for two months. I've done some outpatient, but currently in, in my recovery around my crazy work hours, um, I go to at least one face-to-face 12-step meeting a week where I feel the support from my brothers and sisters who suffer from this same disease that tells us that we don't have a disease. I see a specific therapist, a certified sex addiction therapist once a week. We go through my emotions and we talk about the types of triggers that I might've had throughout the week and triggers are everywhere. I do anywhere from two to three telemeetings a week when I can't get to a face-to-face meeting. I've continued in EMDR. I am working on my impulsivity control and, and I have a, about three or four people that I call my accountability partners that I need to check in with every day, whether it's not specifically a sponsor, but other people in the program who I just reach out to every day just to let them know I'm here and talk about my problems and they can talk to me about their problems where we can just listen to each other. I love that, Mark. There's so much to celebrate there. And I'd love just to ask one more question. You mentioned the addiction, not just being about the physical act of sex, but there was sort of a secrecy that was exciting. Would you mind shedding a little bit of light around that? Oh, absolutely. When I introduce myself at a 12-step meeting, I don't just say that I'm a sex addict. I introduce myself as a sex fantasy and secrecy addict. Um, Really, the the high for me lately has been secrecy. And, and I realize it now that it's really always been prevalent throughout the addiction. But that is my largest trigger right now is I feel the need to have a secret, whether it's a secret stash of money, whether it's a photograph of someone that I shouldn't have, whether it is contacting or seeing a person that that I'm attracted to. It I equate it to a stash. You know, those who don't want to give up control have to have that little tiny stash left, even if it's just the littlest thing. And to me, without getting rid of that stash, I can't truly get rid of all. 
of all of what I need to get rid of. I, I don't, I'm sorry. That's okay. Having that stash gives me control and I have to give up all of that control in order to succeed through the 12 step program. The first step talks about being powerless. And if I can't honestly admit that I'm powerless over this because I have my addict telling me it's okay to keep that little stash, then I'm never going to succeed in my recovery. And it's that secrecy that that damages my marriage. It's that secrecy that damages my relationships, be it at work or be it in my personal life with the few friends that I've not alienated and pushed away through my isolation. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Mark. And, you know, I, it, it brings me to want to encourage anybody who's listening to just remember that the, the journey to healing is, is constant, consistent work. You know, this soul work to embrace, to let go, to move forward is an every single day venture. And Mark, this vulnerability and really the opposite of being secret right now, being very, very open and willing to share I believe is, is a big step in the process to healing. And I hope that it feels that way for you as well. I hope that this feels a little bit lighter and I hope that alchemizing your story to a place of empowerment to move forward to healing and to be your best self is something that you can find and we can all find. And I'm so grateful for you. And I would love just to round it all out with asking one last question. And that is, what does the term optimal health mean to you? Well, gosh, besides the obvious physical and uh, emotional health, I believe it includes mental health, uh, which I suffer from a few afflictions in that regard. So I use medication and meditation for those, but especially throughout the addiction, this is a spiritual disease and there needs to be a spiritual health, whether it be a higher power as they refer to it in the meetings, whether that higher power be named God, whether that higher power be named Buddha, whether that high power have a name, a face, a shape, whatever higher power a person can rely on and believe in, I believe increases the ability to heal mentally and to heal emotionally and probably to heal physically as well. Thank you so much for that. I think that holistic picture is really beautiful and Bless that medication and bless that meditation, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you again, Mark. And I really appreciate you being here. And I've appreciated having the chance to talk to you. And I hope that this helps even one person break out of the shell of the stigma of this type of addiction. Absolutely. And on that note, maybe it would be good to share maybe a resources or what would you recommend for somebody that might be hearing this and thinking, um, I, I need help. 
where should they go? Well, without naming specific groups again, um, mm. you can always go to the internet and type in uh, sex addiction 12-step groups. There will be about three or four major groups out there. Mm. Um, another one is to pick up a book. I think you can get it online, and I'm sure you can get it at any bookstore uh, by Dr. Patrick Carnes. It's called Facing the Shadow. And mm. Out of the Shadows is another book that he has written. And he is he is probably the, the guru in the field of sexual addiction. And it he teaches about the cycles of shame and guilt and how to change those. Um, there are many tests that you can take online to determine if you may have sex addiction. And by all means, be willing to at least have one session with a certified sex addiction therapist to see if, if you, I hate to use the word qualify, but if you pass the test. Amazing, Mark. Those are really, really good resources. So thank you again. And I deeply appreciate you. I appreciate being here. Robert, I'm so excited to have you here with me today. I'm truly honored and grateful. And for our listeners today, um, I am blessed to have my friend Robert Crotty here. He has been sober since May 2006. He is a below-knee amputee that happened in 2017, and he is a competitive power lifter. This is amazing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Robert, you love to travel. You love spending time with your family and with your pets, and I really just want to dive right in. Um, your energy is infectious, and I really would just like Thank to you. hand the mic right over to you and just ask if you wouldn't mind, please, sharing with us briefly your story of addiction and then diving right into what was the turning point for you? Happily. Thank you so very, very much for having me on here. I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity. Um, I, growing up, I, I had a bunch of problems. I had ADHD, and so I had a very addictive personality, and I would find, in order to combat my ADHD, I would find something that really kind of just meant something to me, and I would glom onto that, and that would be my everything. And as I got older, that became alcohol. And I would drink and drink, and just one beer became 15 to 20 real quick. And then I always had that stupid mentality of, I'm fine, I can drive myself home. And two DUIs later, um, I realized this is a terrible terrible idea. My parents picked me up from jail after my second DUI, the sober tank, and we got back to their house and I, out of habit, I went right to the fridge and I grabbed a beer. And I have a very, very tight-knit family and we have a very in infectious saying in our family of your mother, your brothers, yourself. I've got four brothers and everything in life centers around mom or the primary female figure of your life. That is your life. That is everything to you. And my mom said to me, she said, hey, do you mind if I talk to you real quick? And I said, sure, what's up? Pulled me off to the side and she said, you know how I leave the room 
when you start drinking? I'm like, yeah, I've noticed it a couple of times. She said, I go and cry because it hurts to see what you're doing to yourself. You're killing yourself right now. Mm. I set the beer on the table. I looked at her square in the face and I said, I will never touch another drop of alcohol in my entire life. That was May 27th, 2006. It is, and I have been sober ever since. Wow. It's really amazing and powerful to hear someone have just such a quick wake up moment, right? So, yeah. And obviously it sounds like you had been through a lot to get to that point. So I'd like to ask transitioning right into my next question, you know, addiction can typically be a response to trauma or a bandaid of some kind. And you mentioned when you were a child, you had ADHD and then you often grommed onto something, right? You would sort of obsess over something and have this somewhat addictive personality, right? So do you feel like as a child, this then led into, I mean, you mentioned that it fed into alcohol, but even behind that, what do you think it was that soothing or that bandaid that the addiction then felt so good to hold on to? I had a really, really hard time. Um, so when I was a kid, in addition to the ADHD, I had alopecia areata, which Mm -hmm. is a white blood cell disorder where the white blood cells see the hair follicle as a foreign matter. They attack it, kill it, your hair falls out. In sixth grade, I was bald. Now, middle schoolers are mean. They're terrible, terrible people to other middle schoolers all the time. I was called cancer boy. I was called just about everything in the book. I was told I should go kill myself a number of times. Um, And, uh, you know, I would always talk with my family about it. And growing up, I always had a really, really difficult time making friends. And then when I got older and I started drinking, the friends that I had, that was what it all centered around was drinking. And so to keep the friendships stable, we would just keep drinking. Once I got sober, I haven't spoken to any of them since at all. Not a single one of them has ever reached out to me to see how I'm doing, to see anything. And the last I heard, they're still all drinking just as heavily. It's so interesting to me to see how extreme we go to feel safe, loved, and accepted in life, right? And Def- I can, definitely. I, I too have, a, I guess, what would be considered an audio, autoimmune disease. I've had psoriasis since high school, and I can just really relate to the pains that it comes with when you know when your body starts to do things that feels out of your control, and then on top yeah. of that the bullying and kids telling you that you should take your life. I mean, honestly, it's, I have to take a deep breath. (laughs) I I am very blessed. My family is very, very, very supportive in not only with what, what I was going through as a child, but especially with my sobriety. Um, and, and I, I'm comfortable and I have a different mentality in sobriety than most. And I, that I've found, I mean, I went and did AA for a long time and found that in AA people would, it it was very cyclical in the grouping that I was with. They would go to meetings, they would stay sober. Then they would all hang out together after the meetings. And then one of them would go off and relapse and blame everyone else at the meeting for their relapse. And I, I looked, I finally had had enough after the fourth or fifth person that did this in this grouping that I was with at AA. And I said, and now mind you, let me put this disclaimer out there. Alcoholics Anonymous is an amazing organization and support system. And it does work for millions of people. It did not work for me. 
But mm. I looked at these people, and, and I think, honest to God, that it was a grouping of people that I was with that were trying to blame shift their their addiction onto everyone else. I looked at this guy and I said, look, no one forced you to drink. We're all sitting here. So it sounds like this group of people that you are with were primarily in, I guess what I would consider a victim's mindset. Very much right? so. And, and it sounds like for you coming more so from a place of abundance and self-realization and accountability, it didn't work for you. Correct. And that leads me into actually my next question, which is so perfect. And that's really, did you ever have that realization that actually you're not broken, but maybe you were trying to mask a deeper wound that needed healing? I, I really believe that I was. I think I was trying to make up for all of the medical issues that I suffered as a kid, being a social outcast constantly. I was pushing myself towards alcohol as that band-aid to try and make up for those friendships and relationships that I never had mm. with other kids my own age. But I think the, one of the biggest things, and I've, I've actually gone and done talks at uh, the Detroit Veterans Center for their AA group, and there's two questions that are the most important to ask any person in recovery ever. And they're the simplest questions and Everyone fails to ask them, how are you and what's on your mind? Mm. Those two simple questions can completely change someone's day just to let them know that you're there to open up and talk or be that shoulder for them to yell or to cry on or even just talk to. But asking what's in your mind, that could save someone from a relapse so quickly. It's two really simple and really powerful questions, just like you said, that we do not spend the time being genuine about. I mean, I can't even tell you in my coaching sessions with clients, when I, when I really take the moment and just say, really, like looking in the mirror, let's take a deep breath. How are you? And how quickly, just like you said, that could turn somebody around and somebody's day around. So taking another step forward here together, may I ask you if you've ever experienced stigma around your addiction? And if so, how do you deal with that? I have. Um, I've actually had people look at me and even very recently try and get me to drink with them. Mm. Um, now, I don't have any issue being around other people when they're drinking. I don't care. It's, I, I always look at it as it's their choice. My choice is to remain sober and keep my head clear because I know who I am when I drink and I don't like that person. Um, so going out with people and they're like, I know you're, you're not, you don't drink, but you sure you don't want a beer? And I'm like, really? Really? <laughs> that's, that's a terrible question. And my answer is no, I do not want an a beer. Thank you though. You know where I think that comes from? And, and I, this is just coming through for me, Robert, is that's their own discomfort with your sobriety. It has nothing to do with you. It's just their inability to, you know, you are, a, we are all reflections of each other, right? And when we are around yeah. somebody that might be reflecting something within us that's a little bit uncomfortable, or on the other side, if we feel uncomfortable with the person who we're sitting with and their emotions, we often will try to make it better, right? So it, it's it's multiple layered there, but I would venture to say that that question might be either A, their own discomfort, or B, they're just trying to be nice, but it's like, there's so many other ways to do that. So... <laughs> 
I, I, I totally agree. I actually had an instance when I was out of the country on a motorcycle trip and the person that I was traveling with, um, kept asking and kept asking and kept asking and the owner of the bar intervened mm. and said listen he told you he doesn't drink if you ask him this again it's not going to end pleasantly for you because we're going to handle it there you go i love that yeah and i was in Colombia at the time so yeah <laughs> wow so may i ask you do you still consider yourself an addict always anyone who i equate it to so i ride motorcycles mm. and i equate it to this anytime someone says, oh, you drive a motorcycle, no, you ride a motorcycle. And the second that you think you're in control of that motorcycle is when you crash. Mm -hmm. The second that you think you're not in recovery or still an addict is when you're going to relapse the worst. Interesting. So have you had any relapses? No, I have not. I have, I've been overly blessed to have an amazing support structure. Uh, My family is just beyond amazing. My wife is great. She's even cut back heavily on her drinking and she's like, well, you don't drink. I don't really need to have it in the house. And I'm like, great. That's, I, I have no problem. If you want to have it in the house, I know my choices. My choices are mine. And I've been very fortunate to have a great support structure. That's absolutely amazing. So based on your life experiences, can you please share with our listeners, you know, maybe what you're doing now or anything that you'd like to share? Sure. I actually, um, as I said earlier, or as you pointed out earlier, rather, I'm two years post amputation for my right leg. Uh, that was from a, I had staph MRSA and a bone infection in my big toe. But I still power lift. Uh, I still ride motorcycles, fly planes, skydive. I travel as often as humanly possible. I actually just started a new job at a, a DME company, durable medical equipment company. Um, but I am. I'm looking to have some exciting news here in the next week or so that I'll share with you. Um, I don't know yet, but I had applied to do a talk at this upcoming TEDx in Detroit. So I'm hoping to hear back on that real soon. Amazing. I hope it happens, of course. In all efforts to not be attached to the outcome, I think you're doing amazing things. And like I said, Robert, you are just your... Your energy is infectious, and I can't thank you enough, and and I look forward to connecting more, and I appreciate you holding space for kind of these speed interviews for this unique episode here, and I'd love to round it all out by asking you, what does optimal health mean to you? Uh, Optimal health to me is mental and physical health. Mm. Being able to not only see what is going on, but openly address it and acknowledge it. And if you, when people fail to acknowledge it, that's when people suffer the most. Be open. Just, just talk about what's going on. Find someone, anyone, but talk about it. Otherwise, it's going to fester. It's going to brew, and it's going to just make things a thousand times worse. Mm, that is so great. Thank you again, and you are doing amazing things. I'm so appreciative of you, and hopefully, we'll find you on the TEDx stage really soon. And if so, I'll be sure to Thank link you. it in the show notes. <laughs> You are awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Thank you, Rob. I'll be in touch. I wanted to take a quick moment to give you, my community of listeners, some genuine appreciation. I know how valuable and precious our time is in today's world of productivity, and I couldn't be more grateful for yours today. 
If you feel that this episode was of value to you, I would be even more grateful if you were to share it with your people. Go ahead and copy and paste that link into messages. Or if you're feeling really creative, pop a screenshot of the episode into your Instagram stories and send it on over to that person in your life who might need this boost of inspiration today. Don't forget to tag the podcast handle Let's Start Health and my personal account, The Yogi Yachty, so we can have all the fun connecting, building community, and sharing all the things. Thank you again, and remember, be curious and unwavering on this podcast.